It is the best-selling book in history. No volume ever written has been more loved and quoted. And its words, sometimes simple and sometimes mysterious, should always be studied carefully. It is the Bible, the Word of God. Welcome to Bible Answers Live, providing accurate and practical answers to all your Bible questions. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this broadcast, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, here's your host from Amazing Facts International, Pastor Doug Batchelor. Hello, friends. Would you like to hear an amazing fact? He is being called the polygamist of the century. In 2022, Arabic papers and TV reported on a Saudi man who married 53 times in 43 years in an effort to find peace in his life, ostensibly. The 63-year-old man, called Abu Abdullah, confirmed on Saudi television that he did not look for personal pleasure in his multiple marriages, but for stability and emotional comfort. Abdullah got married for the first time at the age of 20. His wife was six years older than him. He thought a more mature woman would offer stability. But when they fought, he married a second wife. He pointed out that when a problem arose between his first and his second wife, he thought the solution would be to marry a third and a fourth wife. And after some time, he divorced the first and the second and the third wife to satisfy the fourth wife. And so the soap opera continued for 43 years. You know, in recent decades, the number of men married to more than one woman has decreased in the Arab world, but it is still legal in 58 countries, mostly because the Quran specifically allows for up to four wives. Abu Abdullah emphasized to the media that he's now married to only one woman and does not plan to marry again. Yes, we'll wait and see. Mm. You know, it makes me think, uh, Pastor Cruz, about uh, Solomon. It tells us in the Bible, uh, Solomon, I don't know that uh, he's been beat by too many, but 1 Kings 11, verse 3, it says he had 700 wives and princesses and 300 concubines. Wow. But uh, yeah. all of that marrying and divorcing is obviously not God's plan. And I should maybe say for our friends that are watching right now, I'd like to welcome Pastor Aaron Cruz, who is here. And he's one of our associates at the uh, Granite Bay Church where we pastor. Pastor Ross is on his way overseas right now on a mission project. And this is uh, Pastor Aaron's second time. First time with me. Yeah, the first time, uh, probably a few months ago, I was with uh, Pastor Jean. We had a blast. I was uh, helping him out, fielding a few questions. So I'm happy to be here with you, Pastor Doug, and uh, happy to answer your questions. You know, and if his last name sounds familiar, it's because we've been giving away his grandfather's books on this program for 25 years now. That's right, uh, Pastor Aaron. I think your real name is technically Joseph. Is that right? Yes, it's uh, now legally my middle name. So <laughs> I am Joe Cruz. Uh, for all of you Joe Cruz fans, I am the grandson and uh, inherited his name to an extent. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's really neat, the way the Lord worked all that out. And we are still giving away Joe Cruz books. But uh, back to our subject about marriage. And by the way, I was telling Pastor Cruz, I said, I'm not picking on you because he's getting married in a few weeks. <laughs> Amen. One month, just uh, 
one month away. My fiance is actually here in the studio. She won't be making a, 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 an appearance, but um, she is here to support me, and I'm really excited about that. And I do not plan, uh, Katie, if you can hear me over there, I do not plan on having more than you as my wife. So, Amen. Uh, yes, uh, I'll try to follow the biblical model on that. That's right. And we've got a scripture that talks about that, because I think we all know that... Uh, uh, some countries, not only do they have multiple marriages, but some people do it by they get married and then divorce, and then they remarry, and then they divorce, and then they remarry. And I was sharing with our crew before the program, my dad was married five times, and my mother was married four times, and wow. that happens quite a bit mm -hmm. in North America. But what did Jesus say? Matthew 19, verse 4, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he that made them at the beginning, male and female, and he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they're no longer one, no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And we get a lot of questions during our broadcasts that have to do with marriage and divorce. And does a person have a right to remarry? And what are grounds for divorce? And we have a special offer today. We don't offer this often, but it's a book called What the Bible Says About Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. And we're going to give that away free tonight for those who would like to get a copy of that. How do they do it? Yeah, well, you can simply go to your... If you have a cell phone, you can simply dial pound 250 and then say to your mobile device, Bible Answers Live. That is pound 250 and then say Bible Answers Live. But if you don't have a cell phone and you have just a regular phone, some of us still have those, you can call 1-800-835-6747. Amen. Well, before we get to the phones and our questions for tonight, uh, Pastor Aaron, you want to go ahead and uh, have prayer for us? I would love to. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, day of life that you have given to us. Uh, Lord, I pray that you may speak through us this evening as we answer Bible questions with your answers by God's grace. Uh, fill us with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Are you ready? Let's go to the phone and see what's coming up. All right. Well, our first caller for this evening is Joe calling in from Washington. Hello, Joe. Are you here? What is your question this evening? I am. Thank you. Um, what a pleasure. Um, can you hear me? Loud yes, and clear. Yes, loud and clear. Okay. I have a friend, uh, and uh, she's a new friend, and um, I'm white, and she is a person of color, and we talk about race a lot because I'm married to a black man, so it opens the, that door mm -hmm. about the mystery of racism. And she told me that her people believe that um, God... Uh, God struck them with uh, a curse because of a, a sin. She could, she didn't know what sin, and that is why they have spent centuries being um, abused. And um, you know, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. I don't believe that, but I do not know where to go in the Bible to combat that. And I don't know where it came from. Well, we're going to share with you. If uh, you look in the book of Genesis, when it's talking about Noah, and I think 
You might find this in uh, Genesis 9, where it says in verse 20, Noah became a farmer and he planted a vineyard, and then he drank the wine and was drunk, and he became uncovered in his tent. He was kind of stumbling around drunk and unclothed. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and instead of, you know, just covering his father up, he went out, and I think he and his son Canaan kind of laughed at their father who had, was stumbling around drunk in the tent and was uncovered. And, but Shem and Japheth went, and they backed into the tent with a robe, and they covered him up. And then Noah, when he sobers up, he pronounces a curse on Ham. And there are those who have said that the three sons of Noah created the three races, and that Ham was black, and Japheth was Asian, and Shem was Caucasian. And there's no Bible truth to that. I think some people used that years ago to try and endorse slavery, and they you know, made a case that Ham was the father of all the African people. But you don't really have the nations dividing until you get to Genesis chapter 11. And uh, they basically got together based on what languages they could understand. It had nothing to do with the color of skin. So the races didn't really grow their uh, distinctions until the people did separate. And through the way genetics work is through intermarriage over many generations, certain traits become dominant. So that was a myth that has been perpetrated, and some people, I guess, still repeat it, but it's it's absurd and it's not biblical. Yeah, uh, good answer, Pastor Doug. And another verse that kind of comes to my mind is actually the second commandment. In Exodus 20, verse 5, it talks about, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Ham certainly committed a bad sin against his father, but there's no evidence that that sin carried on the consequences for hundreds of generations. For hundreds and hundreds of generations, right? right. That's just not something there. But uh, hey, thanks, Joe, so much for a- asking that question. Next, we have Ronald calling in from Massachusetts. Hello, Ronald. Are you there? What is your question? Hello, Pastors. Thank you for taking my call. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. loud and clear. Awesome. So I have a few questions, but I told you to ask just one. And the most important for right now is about the Sabbath. So I've been impressed on by the Holy Spirit to start keeping the Sabbath. Yes. And uh, doing my research about the Sabbath, I found that uh, like I have family in different countries where there are many hours ahead of us. So they're already in Sabbath and we're behind. But then I also found that there's countries that are uh, like a whole day ahead of us and other countries that don't even have sunset certain times of the year. So they say that keeping Sabbath was just for the national Israel back then. Um, Just wondering how's the best way with all of this evidence to explain that we still have to keep the Sabbath and that the Bible actually supports all of us as mankind to keep the Sabbath. Yeah, well, of course, the Sabbath begins and ends with sunset, according to the Bible, on the uh, seventh day of the week, or as the seventh day begins. Uh, you keep the Sabbath when it gets to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you're taking a plane around the world, when do you get on the plane? Well, when it lands and it's at your destination. It's interesting you would mention that because as I speak right now, I'm here in California. My wife has gone uh, ahead of me to Australia and... Uh, she was enjoying the Sabbath over there before the Sabbath had come to me because they're about a day ahead. So, but I don't find any 
complication with that. And I always think it's interesting this question comes up when people learn the Sabbath truth because folks don't have any problem getting to church on Sunday. Hmm. Uh, even though they're in different time zones, they go to church when the mm-hmm. day gets there. And so right. we keep the Sabbath when it comes to us based on the sun and the time and the days. Everybody in the world, even the North Pole, got a seven-day week. Yeah. So, it, yeah, it's not, not a problem. Yeah. Hey, Ron, Ronald, thank you so much for your question. You know, I might mention to Ronald just one more thing. You know, we have a website, Ronald, and it's called SabbathTruth.com. It's one of the most popular websites on the subject, just reams of information on the Sabbath. If you just go to SabbathTruth.com, and for our friends that are listening that speak, uh, that are bilingual, speak Spanish, it's also in Spanish. It's SabadoBiblical.com, and uh, just has a whole encyclopedia of questions and answers, including this one. Thanks so much for your question. Yes. All right. Our next caller is calling in from Ohio, and his name is Glenn. Hello, Glenn. Are you there with us? Yes, I am. Thank you very much for taking the call. My question concerns the feasts of Leviticus 23. People tell me I'm fussy about it, but you know, those are not Jewish feasts. God says, tell the children of Israel, these are my feasts, and it's a capital M. So we're talking about feasts of God. And the question I have about this is there seems to be an aloofness among people about the keeping of the feasts, whether they're whether they should be or should not be, or they're not for Christians, or what, a lot of different say so about whether they should be kept or not. And my question is: is should we be keeping the feasts in lieu of the scripture in Zechariah chapter fourteen? verses 16 through 19. Does that have any bearing on whether we should keep the Feast of Tabernacles in this case or not? Well, I'll tell you what. Let me do something, Glenn. For the benefit of our friends that are listening, I'm going to read that, Zechariah 14. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. Such shall be the plague on the horse and on the mule and on the camel in that day. And uh, I think I think you want to especially go to verse 16. And it'll come to pass, everyone who is left of all the nations which have come against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year and worship the king, the Lord of hosts, to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was their memorial of their deliverance from slavery. And we will be remembering that God has saved us from the slavery of sin. Um, so... I think this is just a, a symbol of, uh, of course, when it's talking about going up to Jerusalem, it's talking about the new Jerusalem, we believe is in heaven. You can read in Isaiah chapter 66, where it says, and from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before the Lord. So among those 52 Sabbaths in a year, uh, one will be a special way of remembering our redemption. Now, I would say to a person that if you want to keep the feasts, uh, enjoy yourself. Paul says in Romans chapter 14, one man regards one day above another, another man regards every day alike. He says if you're going to regard a day, regard it to the Lord. If you're not going to regard the day to the Lord, you do not regard it. He's speaking specifically about the, the feasts there and not the Sabbath of the Ten Commandments, which was part of God's perfect plan. The feasts all came as a result of sin. The Sabbath of the Ten Commandments was in the Garden of Eden. It goes back to the beginning. But we do have a book. We can offer you a free copy, Glenn, that talks about uh, 
the feasts. And if you call Amazing Facts, call that resource number and ask for the booklet dealing with the feasts. Yeah, that's a great resource. Just a few extra verses want to kind of throw in there. Um, so there's a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 foretelling the arrival of the Messiah. And there in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, it, it says that the Messiah, he, shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, right? Mm -hmm. Foretelling that the various cultic rituals that God himself had established that were shadows pointing to himself would no longer uh, be kept in the same way that his people did in the Old Covenant, Old Testament mm -hmm. era, right? So nowadays, if it, it'd be impossible to fulfill to the letter of the law uh, all of the various feasts. You'd have to go, number one, to, an act, to the temple in Jerusalem, which isn't there, right? Uh, you'd have to bring uh, an animal sacrifice, which uh, New Testament makes quite clear. Those were just shadows of, of the sacrifice of Jesus. So if you're going to insist on, on keeping some of these in the exact same way of the Old Testament, it's going to be quite difficult, mm -hmm. um, and I don't think it's something that the Scripture commands us to do explicitly any longer. Yeah, when Jesus died on the cross, it says the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, mm -hmm. and this indicated that the whole ceremonial system of sacrifices and feasts, um, and that's what it's talking about also in Colossians. Yeah. You know, that's all nailed to Colossians chapter 2. Yeah, that's another good one. Well, thanks so much uh, for your question, Glenn. Our next caller is Junith, calling in from Nevada. Hello, Junith. Hello, Pastor Aaron and Pastor Dog. Can you hear me? Yes, very well. Okay, good. Very well. Thank you for taking my call. Anyway, my question is uh, about the uh, the deception of Eve around the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. I am not so convinced that he, she got deceived because of her curiosity. So can you please uh, give us an answer as to the biblical perspective. Was it because of the presence of the one-third of the angels that was deceived by the devil or Satan was around the tree as well? That uh, because uh, the devil got Eve into a conversation, they had a chance of devouring, um, kind of devouring Eve there that uh, put her in a, in a cloudy state of mind when the instruction of God was very, very crystal clear not to even touch, not to eat of the fruit of the truth, the, the knowledge of good and evil. Okay. Well, for one thing, how was Eve deceived so easily? Uh, you mentioned that, well, we know the devil was there possessing the serpent. Could he have other fallen angels that were there that were uh, whispering in her ear? Possibly, the Bible doesn't say, but I would also think that God's got good angels that may have been trying to encourage her to make the right decision and his spirit within here. But uh, there's a few things at play here. One is the devil played upon uh, the very things that attracted him. He said, you will be like God. He was saying to Eve, you know, you'll have special powers. Look, I was just a serpent and now I can talk. Look what eating the fruit did for me. And you can have this power and God's trying to keep something from you. And so that of course got her curiosity. The desire for a more power was attractive. And also, uh, Eve had never heard a lie before. I know mm. it's hard for us to imagine living in a world of innocence where everyone tells the truth, and she had to grapple with the fact that she was being deceived. Someone was stating an outright lie, mm -hmm. or at least a partial lie. 
He said, has God said you shouldn't eat from any of the trees? Well, he exaggerated that. So all those things were at play, Junith, I think. And uh, yeah. Yeah, a, a, a telling verse uh, is found about the deception that Paul writes um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse 3. Mm-hmm. We get a little insight into the deception of Eve. Um, it reads, Paul writes, he says, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And then he says what the deception was. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus Mm -hmm. whom we have not preached, et cetera, et cetera, he says, you may well put up with it. So what Satan did to Eve is he presented to Eve another version of who God is. Mm -hmm. He made God to look like an overbearing, overly restrictive God, a liar, someone who can't be trusted, and selfish. He's afraid to share power, and he was hiding it. Exactly. So when a picture is presented of our loving God to be this tyrannical view, well then, Eve was presented with these two pictures, and she chose the wrong picture, and that caused her to rebel. That's right. So, Judith, we do have a booklet that talks about temptation, and we'll be happy to send you or anybody that wants to have a free copy of that. It's called Tips for Resisting Temptation. And Pastor Aaron, how do they get that? Well, you can dial in, if you have a cell phone, to pound 250. That's pound 250, and simply say Bible Answers Live. And there you will uh, ask the, the person that you'll speak to for the offer um, what was it again? <laughs> Tips for resisting temptation. Tips for resisting temptation. Very good. Okay, I think we're ready for the next call. All right, our next caller is calling in from Illinois, and it is Gary. Hello, Gary. Are you there? Yes. In uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, it says, Satan will appear and perform signs, powers, and miracles that will deceive all those who love not the truth. Are those people who love not the truth the same people who bring believers before kings, authorities, and principalities in Mark 13, where we're not to worry about uh, what we should say or premeditate, but words will be given to us? Are those those the same people who deliver us to kings and authorities? And is the Antichrist giving, giving all those who love not the truth a new philosophy, a new doctrine that Christians will have to answer to? Okay, well, anybody who's rejecting the, the truth when God brings it through the Holy Spirit and uh, they're convicted and they stifle that, they would fall into the category that they can come to the place where they sincerely believe a lie because they've rejected the truth. When you take away light, the only thing left is darkness. So it's not that God mm-hmm. is trying to trick them with a lie. It's just when you reject truth, the only thing left is a lie. Mm-hmm. And that would be the same group that will bring us before kings and councils. And God says in that hour, the Holy Spirit will uh, tell you what you ought to say in defense of the truth. And uh, we're hoping that at those occasions, there are people listening who are still open. When Paul was being tried in a number of occasions, when Paul was being uh, persecuted and tried in, in front of different groups, um, there were people in the crowd listening to him give a faithful witness that were convicted and later became believers. I'm thinking about Sergius Paulus, who ended mm. up being uh, believing, even though Bar-Jesus was resisting, the, the sorcerer was resisting Paul's words. So 
Yeah, they, I think anybody rejecting the truth falls in that category. Yeah, if uh, those who reject the truth, it's all throughout biblical history that they have a tendency to persecute God's people mm -hmm. and bring us before trials. And some will be sincere. I mean, mm. Paul, when he was pers persecuting Christians, he thought he was helping God out. Yeah. And he, he just was wrong. Yeah, yeah. All right, we got maybe time for one more before our break. Let's see. All right, our next caller is calling in from Texas, and it's Jerry. Hello, Jerry. Are you there? What is your question? Hi, Aaron. Just a side note, yes. I first saw you on TV two weeks ago, and I called your father, Larry. He's been my friend for a few years. Anyway, my question is that uh, there's many verses in the Bible that refer to this. Uh, the verse I'm taking now is 1 Samuel 4, 4. And it says, So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who sits above the cherubim. And, of course, it says two sons of uh, Samuel. Mm -hmm. But is it possible that Jesus Christ was the other guardian angel above the throne of God? I don't think so, uh, and part of the reason is you have a more vivid picture of the, the Ark itself was just a miniature depiction of God's throne in heaven with the two angels. When you look in Isaiah chapter 6, he is in the presence of God, and it says there's these two cherubim that are saying, holy, holy, holy. Uh, Jesus is the one to be worshipped, mm. and so Jesus wouldn't be the angel on the right or the left. He's not an angel. Jesus is God the Son. And uh, it says in Hebrews, the angels worship him. So if you think the two angels, it, it directed that both Solomon and Moses, that those angels would be faced towards each other inward with their faces down. Mm -hmm. Kind of like the picture in Isaiah. And uh, it says they're covering their faces in Isaiah because the presence of God is there. And uh, their, their attention is focused on the one who's on the throne, which would be Christ. And, you know, you could also say the Father, is Jesus, you know, he sits down and says at the right hand of the Father. But um, that's a picture of God in the middle. Yeah, Jesus, um, I mean, Revelation chapter 3, he's seated um, on the throne with, with God the Father, right? He overcame and was seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, so Jesus is definitely there on the throne. Um, we don't know who the other angel is. Maybe some people s speculate to a degree, maybe it's Gabriel. Right, but the ultimate thing is the Bible's not clear exactly who the other fallen angel, excuse me, the other unfallen angel was. Yeah, it would be. Uh, I think that one at least is Gabriel. Some of my Catholic friends say one of his guy named Raphael, but I don't know where they yeah. get that. <laughs> hey, friends, you can hear the music. We're going to take a break. Be back with more Bible questions. Stay tuned. Bible Answers Live will return shortly. Do you feel as though your world is spiraling out of control? Or perhaps new life challenges are frightening you more than they should? Are you sinking while you're thinking? Excessive worry can consume you, eating you from the inside out, resulting in sickness, insomnia, and paralyzing fear. It can also damage relationships, ruin opportunities, and yes, diminish your witness for the gospel. Worry affects everybody differently, but it's all driven by fear. So how can you overcome a world full of reasons to be anxious? I'd like to recommend for you my new book, Finding Peace in a World of Worry. You'll discover a lifeline to victory, 
a place where you can cast your cares upon Christ and experience a serenity that isn't subject to your circumstances. Send a gift of any amount to receive your copy of Pastor Doug's new book, Finding Peace in a World of Worry. Call 877-232-2871 today. You can become a Bible expert with the Amazing Facts Historicals of Prophecy Bible Study Experience, now available in 18 languages. These 24 easy-to-read lessons will give you confidence about what the Bible really says about last-day prophecy, the afterlife, and so much more. Even better, it's absolutely free at storicals.org. Don't miss out. Get the answers you need for a happier, healthier life today at storicals.org. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, where every question answered provides a clearer picture of God and His plan to save you. So what are you waiting for? Get practical answers about the good book for a better life today. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's rejoin our hosts for more Bible Answers Live. Welcome back, listening friends, to Bible Answers Live. And for any of you that tuned in along the way, as you can tell, this is a live international interactive Bible study we are not only playing on uh, radio, about 300 radio stations around the country, on satellite radio, Sirius XM. We're on uh, Amazing Facts Television right now, and we're rebroadcast on several other television stations. want to say hi to friends that are watching on Lifestyle TV in Sweden, Hope Channel, and others, and A Better Life, Good News. And thank you so much for tuning in. We're streaming on Amazing Facts Facebook page, the Doug Batchelor Facebook page, and you can send a text to your friends right now if they want to take in the second half of the program. Uh, my name is Doug Batchelor, And I'm Pastor Cruz, and we're glad that you have joined us for this evening's uh, show, and we've got another caller uh, with another question. We have Brittany here calling in from our very own state, California. Welcome, Brittany. What is your question? Yeah, my question is, with all the problems of the world we have today, does it in, does all this involve the sign of the times mentioned in Matthew 24 and Revelation 13? Okay, good question. Now, Matthew 24, well, there are three or four places in the New Testament where Jesus kind of highlights signs of his return. You've got Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 17, and Luke 21. There's, there's nothing specifically in John, but twice in Luke. And uh, uh, then when you say Revelation 13, that's a little more specific when you're talking about the beast and the mark of the beast, though some of that has already been fulfilled in history. And uh, I, I tell people if you want, at the end of the response here, you can also request the lesson on you know, who is the Antichrist? And you'll see how that prophecy is already being fulfilled. But um, as far as signs, you know, Pastor Cruz, I did an online Bible study last week uh, that was translated in Chinese. It, it was a live study, and mm. there was about 
over 200,000 people tuned into the stream, and the subject was Seven Signs of Christ's Return. In fact, I'll be in Australia next week, and I'll be also presenting that study. And I was going through just things like conditions in the world today with everything from overpopulation to, uh, you know, the threat of wars and rumors of wars. And uh, Jesus said in Matthew 24, there will be plagues. I think, you know, most people would agree the pandemic was in that category, though not as bad as the Spanish flu. It was still a, a deadly plague. And, uh, but there's always been wars. There's always been plagues. The things that make it different today, in my mind, a couple of things. One is, in Daniel chapter 12, and Jesus said, um, many will run to and fro and knowledge will increase. Well, you look at the explosive increase in knowledge in the last hundred years in technology. Mm. Wisdom has not increased, but knowledge has certainly <laughs> increased. And uh, just everything is kind of going robotic with artificial intelligence. And uh, all my life, people have accused me of having artificial intelligence. But <laughs> <laughs> this is a new, new meaning now. Uh, and then you also have uh, something different. It says the gospel will be preached. This is Matthew 24, 14. The gospel will be preached in all the world for a witness unto the nations, and then the end will come. And now through things like this program that's going out on the Internet around the world, and radio and television and the printed page and missionaries, and there's so many means right now to rapidly communicate with the world. Mm -hmm. doesn't say everyone would believe and be converted. It says as a witness. And the gospel is going around the world, I think, in this generation. So... Uh, I don't worry about the second coming. I'm actually very excited about it because Amen. if you're ready, then it's a glorious appearing. You're looking forward to it. But yes, I do think we are living in the last days. No man knows the day and the hour. I mean, during World War II, they thought this is the end of the world with a nuclear bomb. And here we are 70 years later. So, but you look at the explosion of the population around the world and the resources that are being uh, consumes so it exponentially quicker. I guess it says the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, you wonder how much longer can it last? Yeah, and uh, a, a key verse is Matthew 24, verse 8. Jesus says, all of these signs that you're seeing in the world are like birth pains. Some mm -hmm. translations will say sorrows. In the original Greek, it's birth pains. And the thing about birth pains is, is that birth pains get more frequent and more intense the closer you get to the delivery of the child, right? So wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, right? COVID-19, global pandemic, all of these various signs are going to get more frequent and more intense mm -hmm. the closer we're getting. And that's exactly what we're seeing around the world today. Yeah, even with the natural disasters, insurance companies say, that it seems like the intensity and frequency is increasing. Mm. And Jesus mentions earthquakes in Matthew 24. Thank yeah. you, Brittany. We do have a, a study guide that talks about the second coming of Jesus, and we'll be happy to send you a free copy of that. It's called The Ultimate Deliverance. All right. Our next caller is Abigail, who's calling in from Florida. Welcome to Bible Answers Live, Abigail. What is your question? Hi, how are you, pastors? Doing, Doing well. Uh, my question is about 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 12, which discusses head coverings. Okay. I'm wondering what this portion means exactly, and if women are still supposed to wear something that covers the head while praying or prophesying today. Yeah. Well, this is a difficult verse uh, in that when you, you read it, uh, it would seem like it's saying, well, I guess that women are not supposed to pray 
or teach in public unless they have their head covered. And um, the question is, since it's, there's no command anywhere in the Old Testament specifically saying this, and because uh, Paul uses the word later in the chapter, he says, we have no other custom. And so many have thought, well, this was a custom of respect. By the way, that's verse 16. If anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Is this a Bible mandate? Uh, it's understood that as a term of, sub, of respect and or submission to their husbands, women were to cover their heads in public. I know, Pastor Cruz, when I travel to uh, Europe and uh, even some places in India, uh, the women always cover their heads. I remember here in North America, I went to visit with, uh, give a Bible study to an apostolic Pentecostal lady. And at the end, when we knelt to pray, she looked very nervous because she had nothing on her head. Hmm. And she grabbed the curtains. <laughs> and she was by a curtain. She grabbed the curtains and put it over her head because she was very sensitive about praying in public, not having her head covered. Hmm. And well, that always struck me. And I thought, well, you know, I have no problem. You see the, the Mennonites, the, the ladies often have their heads covered if someone wants to do this. But I don't think we can make a command out of it because mm. the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, you've got this one verse where wondering, is this a custom? Mm. If it was a command, you'd see some other corroborating evidence somewhere else, I think. Our next caller is calling in from New York. We have Frank on the line. Hello, Frank. Yes, uh, hi, uh, uh, Pastor Cruz and Pastor Doug. Um, uh, I uh, have a question that, you know, I, I've gotten a little bit of trouble with this, but nevertheless, I've managed to tackle it to the best of my abilities. I read in the Bible that it's an abomination to um, look into the occult and uh, to do things that are against the uh, will of God in the sense of godliness. And uh, my question is, is it a, a sin in itself to uh, research um, uh, devil worship and, um, and sorcery? Uh, is there a scripture in the Bible that says that it's better just be a Christian and follow God's principles and God's uh, laws rather than, uh, you know, indwell and uh, ponder upon what devil worship is? Well, there, there are, that's a great question. You know, suppose you want to research what devil worship is so that you can expose it and preach against it. If you're researching it because you're intrigued and interested, that would be very dangerous. Mm. Uh, I think I would recommend that most people, unless they have a special calling from God because they're encountering something, they, they do more a deeper study. But I heard about a pastor once that uh, he was on a commission on pornography in Washington and he thought to better understand what he's going to be addressing in the commission, he needed to research pornography. And in the process of researching it, he mm. became addicted to pornography. So uh, I would say I, I stay away from the unfruitful works of darkness, as Paul says in Ephesians, and just avoid these things. You know, God says there shall not be found among you anyone that consults the dead or a soothsayer or a wizard or a witch. And... Uh, you become like what you look at. So I'd say keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Yeah, and uh, the verse you just referenced is Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 through 12. And then maybe this is a verse that will find itself to be helpful. Uh, it's in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 through 13 says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. 
But the question is, how do we expose them? Well, Paul says, For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, mm-hmm. for wherever uh, for whatever makes manifest is light. So the way in which we should expose the darkness isn't by joining the darkness, isn't by trying, you know, digging ourselves deep into all the things that Satan is doing, but rather proclaiming the light from God's word. Right. Right. Amen. That's the, that's the answer. Thank you, E. Frank. I hope that helps a little bit. And of course, you know, Amazing Facts has a lesson called Does God Inspire Astrologers and Psychics? Does God Inspire Astrologers and Psychics? If you'd like a free copy of that, you can either call 800-835-6747 or what else can they do? If you have a cell phone, you can dial pound 250, pound 250, and ask uh, for that resource. Yeah, just, I think you just say Bible Answers Live, Bible and answers it'll direct live. you to. Yep. All right, who's next? All right, our next caller is Steve calling in from Texas, and looks like you're a first-time caller, Steve. Welcome to our program. Well, thank you. Uh, greetings from Texas. Amen. Uh, I, was, I was curious about uh, who was running uh, the store in heaven when uh, Jesus was down here on earth. Uh, Was there any priestly duties going on, and who was doing that? Okay, that's a good question. So when you think about uh, Christ as our high priest, the Bible tells us that in Hebrews, and what a priest typically does is he is offering blood and sacrifice. He's you know, pleading the blood of the sacrifice, and he's a mediator for the people. Well, Christ has always been our mediator, but it wasn't until the sacrifice of Jesus that he went before the Father pleading his blood. Up until then, there was the ceremonial system and the temple on earth and the sacrifices on earth that prefigured what Jesus would ultimately do. So when we talk about the temple of heaven, you keep two things in mind. You've got the dwelling place of God where you've got the throne of God in heaven, and God's always been on his throne. But then as far as the priestly ministry, which is unique to sin, uh, Jesus did not really activate that until after his sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we have a study guide, Steve, that talks about um, the temple in heaven, and it's called God Drew the Plan. And we will send you a free copy if you'd like. It's called God Drew the Plan. How do they get that? They can get that by calling in to 1-800-835-6747 and saying Bible Answers Live, or if you have a cell phone, just dial pound 250 and say Bible Answers Live. Amen. All right, our next caller uh, we have here calling in from Illinois, and his name is Larry. Larry, my father's name is Larry, so it's a, it's a great name to have. Welcome to the show. Welcome, thank you. Okay, so here it is. I got a friend 30 years ago. My friend and I were baptized together in the Remnant Church, and we keep the Ten Commandments, the seven-day Sabbath, and the, the faith of Jesus. So my question is now for my friend because I'm concerned about him. For five years, he has no worship in a church, in the denomination. He gives no tie. And uh, I see him now and then. Is Did he lose the salvation in the remnant church? And that's sort of my question. And how do I help him? Okay. Well, the, the yeah, important part of that question is, can a person who once fellowshiped, can they slip away? 
And the answer is clearly yes. Uh, you know, Paul makes it very clear. He says, I could preach to others and myself be a castaway. Uh, you've got examples in the Bible of people who, uh, Hebrews chapter 6, you know, they walked with the Lord, but uh, they, they turned away. And it says it's impossible to renew them to repentance. Now, that would be a unique case, but they clearly they've turned away. In Revelation, it says, repent or I'll take your candlestick out of its place. And he's speaking to the churches. So how do you reach a friend or a loved one that is drifting? There's typically four things you can do. One is be a good witness to them. Two, pray for them. Amen. Three, if they're open, and this is where it gets a little delicate, share information. You can't you know, force a person to listen to If you're preaching to your kids and others all the time, you're just going to drive them away. But if they're open, give them a DVD or magazine or share with them or a Bible study. Uh, give them a website to look at and so they can read on their own. And then the, uh, the fourth thing is do the first three patiently. Don't give up. Amen. Keep doing the first three. Amen. There's only those really nothing else you can do. Be a good witness. Pray and pray is very powerful, and uh, share information, and continue, <laughs> persist. Amen. Yeah. Um, King Solomon was clearly with the Lord for much of his life, but then, um, as was mentioned a little bit earlier in our show at the beginning, is this brother definitely backslid, and he. Uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he describes his life where he just went full-on worldly, mm. but he still came back to the Lord. Amen. Right? So you can be with the Lord, leave him, but then still come back. So con yep. continue to pray for your, for your friend, your brother in Christ, and um, yeah, just persevere in those prayers. Amen. Well, Larry, thanks so much for calling. Our next caller is Lee calling in from Texas. Lee, welcome to Bible Answers Live. What's your question? Yes, thank you. Yes, my question is, after the seven last plagues, will people still remain on earth until Christ appears, or does he appear immediately after the seven last plagues, or is there maybe like a few days after the seven last plagues and then he appears? Well, uh, Pastor Cruz may look this up for me, but uh, the seventh plague is synonymous, and I think this is going to be in Revelation 16, uh, yeah, Seventh plague is synonymous with the second coming. So that great earthquake and the hail that falls from heaven, um, this is the coming of the Lord. And so at the conclusion of the seventh plague, it's a plague for the lost, but it's really salvation for the saved. Keep in mind when the tenth plague fell upon the Egyptians, that tenth plague was the harbinger that Israel was going to begin its journey the next day. And so uh, it's interesting there were ten plagues on Egypt, the last seven plagues, God protected the children of mm. Israel. And it was at the end of the last seven plagues for the Israelites that they were delivered. In other words, the last seven that they were protected from. And uh, it's at the end of the seven plagues in Revelation. Yeah, and uh, that seventh plague that you're referring to mm -hmm. is at the end of Revelation chapter 16. The last few verses, right. you can read that. And it's clearly the second coming of, of Jesus um, is, is strongly you know, described there. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate your question, Lee. All right. Our next caller is calling in from North Dakota, and his name is Tom. Hey, Tom, welcome to the show. What's your question? Thank you. Yeah, I was calling regarding a conversation with a friend regarding the manner in which Jesus is coming the second time. And I shared with him 1 Thessalonians uh, 16 to 17. 
uh, about him ascending to meet him in the clouds of heaven. Uh, they had the question then, how do we reconcile uh, Zechariah 14, 1 uh, through 5, where he is uh, standing on the Mount and his foot's in two, the day of the Lord? So I, I'm still not sure. The second, it, when it says in Zechariah that the feet of the Lord touched the Mount of Olives, this is happening at the end of the 1,000 years. The second coming, let me just say it. Okay. Uh, yeah, let me explain it, and then I think it'll become clear. Jesus went to heaven, John 14. He said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am you might be. He comes he takes us up. We are caught up to meet him in the air, First Thessalonians 4. We, he doesn't touch the ground at that point. We live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. But then you read in Revelation chapter 21, he sees the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven. The redeemed, of course, are with him in the city. That's when his feet touch the Mount of Olives, creates a great valley. The new Jerusalem settles down into this incredible valley that's been created by the the Lord touching the earth again. And that also fits in with uh, Zechariah chapter 14, where his feet touch, at that point, his feet touch the earth. It's interesting, Pastor uh, Aaron, that Jesus, he said, I'm going to come as I left. And it says he ascended from Bethany on the Mount of Olives. It's mm. an area right between the two. And he's coming back to the Mount of Olives. So he's yeah. literally coming back where he ascended. And his feet are going to touch where they left it off, probably. Yeah, yeah. So to just summarize what you just said, Pastor Doug, is that at the second coming, we know that he's not going to touch earth Correct. again. But a thousand years, right, after his second coming, he'll come a third time, yeah. <laughs> along with all of the redeemed. And that's when uh, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and his feet will touch the earth. And that's when that prophecy of Zechariah 14 will reach a full fulfillment. Right. And then, yeah, the per person may want to get our lesson on the millennium mm. to really study that. And it's called A Thousand Years of Peace. If you'd like a free copy, you can ask for it right now. Yep. Dial in pound 250 into your cell phone and say Bible Answers Live. All right. Our next caller is calling in from Florida, and we have Carlos. Hi, Carlos. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Pastors. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so the, my, my question is, uh, why were the Ten Commandments put into the Ark of the Covenant and the uh, rest of the law put uh, out, out beside it? Uh, what, what, what did this mean? What was the purpose of that? Well, there's a distinction made between the two. The, the most holy object on the planet was the Ten Commandments. What I mean by that is it was the Word of God, and Jesus was the, is the Word of God, and it was written on rock, and Jesus is the rock. And in the holy city, you've got the holy mountain. In the holy temple on the holy mountain, you've got the holy sanctuary. You've got the holy place. You've got the holy of holies. And the only thing in the holy of holies was the holy ark. And in the holy ark, you've got the holy law. But the law of God was written with God's finger, the ceremonial laws were written by the hand of Moses, and it mentions those again in Colossians chapter 2. And Moses said, they're going to be there to be a witness against you. He's talking again about the ceremonial laws. They were put in a pocket on the outside because they were of a passing nature where the ark written by the hand of God was a, of an unchanging na nature. One was the hand of man, one was the finger of God, one was written on stone, one was written on parchment, or we'd say paper. Mm -hmm. So there was a distinction between the two, 
one is permanent, eternal, and one is passing. And um, but it was a, still a sacred record for two thousand mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Carlos. Appreciate that, and hope that that we do have a lesson called "God Drew the Plans," and it talks about the um, the temple and the ark. The in ark. That lesson. Yeah, and just for the the other listeners, uh, the the verse that. Carlos is referencing is Deuteronomy 31, verse 26. That's where it says the book of the law shall be pr- placed besides the ark, right? While the Ten Commandments were placed inside of mm-hmm. it. Okay, I think we've got time for one more okay. caller, one more question. We have Barbara calling in from Florida. Welcome, Barbara. What is your question this evening for us? Hello, um, my question is in Ezekiel 16 verses 10 to 13 um basically it talks about jewelry um expensive clothes so i was wondering is it okay for us to wear jewelry and expensive clothes since it says it's okay in ezekiel 16 verse 10 to 13. okay in a jewish wedding uh the dowry and the wedding gifts were often given they had no paper money they were often given in the form of the nice clothing. You'll notice that Samson paid for his debt to the Philistines with clothing. Um, and uh, But if you read what it says, for example, you have to compare Scripture with Scripture to say, well, how does God feel about uh, jewelry? Go to Isaiah chapter 3, and if you look here, let me see where this begins. Okay, we can say, yeah, in that day, verse 18, the day of the Lord, he'll take away the finery, the daughters of Zion, the, jingle, the jingling anklets, the scarves, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the veils, the headdresses, the leg ornaments, the headbands, the perfume boxes, the charms, and the rings, the nose jewels, the festal apparel, the mantles, the outer garments, the purses. So describing one is a wedding picture of God marrying the church, but you also have to look at where Paul says, let not the uh, women be adorned with gold and pearls. And, and Peter says, let it not be the outward adorning, the wearing of gold. And that's in First Peter chapter 3. Uh, we're running out of time. I do have a book that I've written on the subject of Christians in adornment. Now, there's nothing wrong with wearing uh, you know, quality clothing that won't wear out. Jesus had a nice robe mm-hmm. that they didn't want to tear up. But uh, as far as the external frivolous adorning, um, yeah, someone will write a song about would Jesus wear a Rolex? Hmm. You know, people have <laughs> made fun of evangelists and people that dress ostentationally. Christians should be modest in their apparel is a, a, a practical principle. Yeah. So uh, uh, the book is called uh, Jewelry, How Much is Too Much? Jewelry, How Much is Too Much? Call 800-835-6747. Quickly, for our friends listening, we sign off in two stages. We're going to say farewell to our friends listening on satellite radio. For the rest of you, we're coming back in just a moment with rapid-fire Bible questions. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. We hope you understand your Bible even better than before. Bible Answers Live is produced by Amazing Facts International, a faith-based ministry located in Granite Bay, California. Hello. (laughs) Welcome back. We have uh, a few minutes left here, and we have some questions that have been emailed to us. So, Pastor Doug, I'm going to, we're going to try to get through as many of these as we can. So, our first question is this. This is by Ari from Norway, intercontinental here. 
When Jesus was finished with his mission on earth, did he then need his own redemptive services, so to speak, if he happened to sin in heaven since he's still a human? In other words, is it possible, could Jesus sin in heaven? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus did no sin. Peter tells us that, that he is the sinless one. And so Christ is the only man that ever lived that never sinned. So he didn't need to have any kind of redemption. You know, when he rose from the dead, he rose with a glorified body. He's pure and perfect. And, uh, uh, and if, heaven forbid, if he did need redemption, his sacrifice on the cross would have covered that. <laughs> but he didn't. Yeah, the last person to ever sin would, uh, will be Jesus. Yeah. Next question uh, by Carlene. She asks, why wasn't Satan destroyed at the flood? And what is the difference between not destroying him at the flood, but destroying him at the second coming? Yeah, good question. Someone's thinking, well, if the whole world was destroyed and Satan was outside the ark, why wasn't he destroyed? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You can't drown the devil, so to speak, in water. He's a spirit. And uh, the reason he's destroyed is because the fire, when the Lord comes back, is not going to be a three-dimensional fire. It's going to be a fire that is going to be the kind of fire that will also devour angels. The Bible says that the presence of the Lord is a consuming fire, and I don't understand the physics of it all, but uh, God is going to send out whatever nuclear spiritual fire it is that the devil needs and his angels to burn them up. Yeah, and one more principle real quick is in Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable about the wheat and the tares. Um, and, and Jesus says, let, bro let both grow together until the harvest. There's something about the full maturity mm -hmm. of both righteousness and wickedness before God brings a final end. Yeah, and then Matthew, it tells us in Matthew uh, chapter 2531 says uh, like a fire prepared for the devil and his angels. his angels matthew 25 anyway yep yeah <laughs> there it is oh hey friends out of time send us more questions next week god bless we look forward to studying with you again next week and go to amazingfacts.org this broadcast is a previously recorded episode if you'd like answers to your bible related questions on the air please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific time. To take advantage of the offers you've heard on this broadcast, call us at 800-835-6747 or visit our website at amazingfacts.org. Tune in next time for more Bible Answers Live, honest and accurate answers to your Bible questions.